Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's opened up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would be reaching for a Bible or be looking uh, at the Bible maybe by the person who's sitting next to you, but let's all be looking in the Scriptures if we can for these next few minutes. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, that'll be the first of many passages that we'll be reading and discussing over the course of the next little while, but that's what this portion of our worship is devoted entirely to, and that is to the reading and discussion and consideration of God's Word. It is great to see everybody on this uh, quite beautiful uh, first Lord's Day morning of the new year. So glad that you've chose to be with us. We do have a number of guests, even some first-time visitors, and we're really delighted that you've come our way, and we hope that we're uh, encouraging you, even as you're an encouragement to us uh, this morning as we worship the Lord together. Hope that you can be back this evening at 6 o'clock, and if... Those of you that are members here, if you did not already do it this past week, I will encourage you this afternoon to read Genesis the third chapter. That was part of our Bible reading uh, schedule for this past week. And I promised that I would do more preaching from our Bible reading schedule this year. And I intend to start that this evening uh, from Genesis chapter 3. So maybe get a prize of that chapter before you're back tonight. This is, the course, of course, the time of year when folks are making lots of resolutions Lots of plans for for changes and for improvements that they want to make in their lives. And this morning I want to offer you a resolution for 2020 that you ought to make, a resolution that you need to make and then keep, and a resolution that you want to make and keep not just for 2020, but for every year thereafter. And I want to pull that resolution out of 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 19. There the apostle writes in 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 19, he says that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I would expect that everybody here this morning knows what that is. Everybody here knows what a stop sign is. We're going down the road, we see that big red, metal, shiny octagon. We know what that is. Even little kids at a very early age, Hattie learned it at a very young age herself, she knows what that is. That's a stop sign. You don't need a history lesson about stop signs. You don't need to know why it's red or the significance of it having eight sides. You don't need to have a master's degree in traffic management. You don't need any of that. We know what a stop sign is. And we know what a stop sign means. It means stop. You come up to a stop sign, you're supposed to stop. We also know that not everybody stops. In fact, we even have a word for it. It's called a rolling stop. And I've been guilty of a rolling stop or two in my lifetime. Not everybody actually does what the stop sign says to do. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19... I think Paul is actually placing a stop sign right there in that verse. If I could translate that for you in the Josh McKibben South Central Kentucky translation, Paul says there, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows His people, and His people are those who stop sinning. Stop sinning. Does that give you pause? Stop sinning? Have you ever said that before? That I'm going to stop sinning? How many people this year, for their New Year's resolution, decided, you know what? This is going to be the year 
that I stop sinning. 2020 is the year that I depart from iniquity. Paul says that the people of God are people who have put a stop sign in their lives when it comes to sin. In fact, the New American Standard renders the end of verse 19, abstain from wickedness. One other translation says, give up doing what is wrong. Don't all of those various expressions mean the same thing? I'm going to stop doing that. Sin. I'm not doing that anymore. Iniquity. I'm done with that. Transgressions. I'm stopping that. Let me ask you this morning. Is that how you feel about sin? You know what? I'm just kind of tired of that. I'm stopping that. In many ways, I think we maybe are a little bit uncomfortable even saying that. You know, for many of us, what we are is we are very accustomed to confessing our sin. We think of that line that is so common in many of our prayers, Lord. We know that we fail Thee often. We are weak and sinful creatures and we often fall short of Your glory. You know, if the devil is a roaring lion, I'm afraid that sometimes we're almost kind of content to just be mauled and be eaten and ravaged by him. As if there's nothing that we can do about that. As if sin, well, sin's just going to happen. After all, what do we say? We say, we're only human. But Paul doesn't say we're only human in 2 Timothy 2.19. Paul does not say, well, you know, we're only human. So if you sin a little bit, or even if you sin a lot, well... It's just the way that it's going to be. No big deal. No. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. Full disclosure, I am standing before you this morning terribly aware that I'm not fully doing that. I am fully and terribly aware of my failings and my weaknesses and my shortcomings. And I am fully aware of the multitude of temptations that our world and our culture and our society places before me every single day. That said, I want to stop sinning. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to help myself to that end. And I want to help all the rest of us to that end especially those of us who name the name of the Lord. And I want to do that by unpacking from the Word of God three absolutely essential keys in order to bringing that to pass in our lives. In our battle against sin, I want to offer some things, the Bible is going to offer us some things that are going to help us get our foot on that path to stop sinning. And I believe if we're going to do that, that what that means is, is that means we're going to have to adjust our thinking on a very fundamental level. And the Bible's going to help us in that direction for the next few minutes. This morning, if we're going to make a resolution, let's resolve to stop sinning. Are you ready to try that with me? I think that needs to begin, that needs to begin by just making sin abnormal in our minds. Let me just go ahead and deal with the objection that I think I see kind of painted on some people's faces by this point. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Josh, this whole sermon just sounds like a mistake. It just sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Stop sinning? What are you talking about, Josh? You know, that just kind of runs counter to what we think a lot of the Bible says. Think, for example, about that parable in Luke, the 18th chapter. 
Jesus tells that parable about a Pharisee who was so smug and who was so proud of his righteousness and his, his righteous deeds and how godly and holy he thought he was. But on the other hand, in contrast, there was a tax collector in that story. And that tax collector is actually commended. Why? Because he recognized, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, I'm not sure that I'm totally comfortable with this kind of prideful sounding stop sinning thing. The tax collector in Luke 18, he acknowledged that he was a sinner and he realized that sin was part of his life. Well, what do we say about all that? How do we recognize and kind of somehow be able to deal with, reconcile the reality of sin in our lives with the ideal that the Bible is presenting that we stop sinning? And how do we do that so that we don't become arrogant and prideful and full of ourselves? Well, let's just start with that acknowledgement. Let's just start with the acknowledgement that yes, Christians do sin. That's 1 John chapter 1. Would you find 1 John 1? In 1 John chapter 1, John writes to Christians, and he says in verse 8, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In fact, John punctuates that in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. And so the truth is, Christians do sin. And I really don't even know anybody that denies that. I imagine everybody here is in absolute agreement with that point. However, secondly, a key element that seems to be overlooked in this discussion is that Christians, well, Christians really should be trying not to sin. And the Bible makes that clear repeatedly. I started us in 2 Timothy 2.19, but can I add to that catalog? Look in Colossians 3, please. In Colossians 3, I want you to be impressed with just how often the Bible says this stop sinning thing. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says it this way in verse 5. In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death. What is that? That's an ending. End that, stop that, kill that, Paul says. How about we hear the Apostle Peter on this? Look in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter concurs in 1 Peter chapter 4, look in verse 1. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin ceased from sin. The New International Version says, done with sin. How about John? Does John agree? Look in 1 John again, this time in chapter 3. John discusses here some loose attitudes that some brethren were having towards sin, where there were people who were sinning and they really didn't seem all that concerned about that. John wants to correct that kind of thinking. In 1 John chapter 3, this is verse 9, John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John says that there is a change in our relationship. When we become obedient to the gospel, there's a change that takes place. There's a change in my relationship with the Lord. It's a new relationship. 
And there's a change now in my relationship to sin. It comes to an end, John says. And yes, John is the one who just a couple of chapters previous is the one who said that Christians do sin. But now here in chapter 3, he says, we're not going to keep on doing that because that relationship has changed. In fact, he furthers that thought in chapter 5. In chapter 5, look in verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God, Christians, does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Let me ask you, do any of those passages that I've just read, do those passages seem to give you the idea that somehow sin, sin is just kind of the normal state of affairs for the Christian? Is that how that sounds to you in any of those passages? It's not how it sounds to me. In fact, it may be the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 that says this in just the most strongest possible terms. In Romans 6, this is a passage that we probably know best as being a passage about baptism. But the truth is, Paul really isn't trying to make a point about baptism. Baptism is really kind of the backdrop to the main thing he's talking about, and that is sin in the life of a Christian. In Romans 6, look in verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Have you ever thought about that? That I'm going to die to sin. If it bothers you this morning to be saying this, this I'm going to stop sinning thing, okay, that's fine. You don't want to say that. Just say what Paul says here. That I am going to die to sin. That is as biblical as it gets. And I'm going to tell you whichever way you cut it, whether you say I'm going to stop sinning or whether I'm going to die to sin, we're still talking about a cessation, aren't we? We're talking about ceasing, terminating, bringing to an end. I'm going to stop doing that. Drop down in verse 7 of this same chapter. Paul says in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Drop down to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. All of that's then summed up in verse 17 when Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Christians are to mortify sin. I like the old King James rendering. Mortify sin. Christians are to cease sinning. We are to put sin to death. Clearly, the Bible expects Christians to put that stop sign in their lives when it comes to sin. Now, that brings me to that third component, which is this, and that is that that's a struggle. It is. Putting sin to death is a struggle. It's not an easy thing to do. Look in Galatians 5. The Bible bears that out as well. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul discusses this constant back and forth and back and forth, this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, he says in verse 17, in Galatians 5 verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're opposed to the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So it is a struggle. And the Bible says, yeah, it is. There's no doubt about that. But would you take a look at this once again? I think pretty much everybody in this room 
is going to be quick to affirm that first thing. Yep. Christians sin. I, I, I'm a sinner. I do. I, I fall short daily. And I think we're also pretty good with that third one. Oh man, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to be a Christian and to walk the straight and narrow and to do what's right and to say no to temptation. But what we fail to say, what we fail to get on board with is that thing right there in the middle. And that is what God expects us to do. And that is that we're going to stop sinning. And I want you to see this morning that the Bible does not say or even give the impression that it is somehow arrogant for us to think or to say or to expect that we're going to stop sinning. The Bible does not think that it's somehow silly to talk and to think in those terms. No, the Bible says again and again, Christians are to cease from sin. I'm afraid though that at least to, to some degree, what's happened is, is we've just kind of thrown in the towel on that middle idea there. We've just kind of acquiesced to the fact that sin is just gonna well, it's just going to be a normal part of our lives. It's going to be a fixture in our lives. It's just kind of standard with being a human being on planet Earth. You know, I sin, you sin, we all sin. And, well, I mean, that's, that's just how it is. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not the attitude that the Bible says we need to have towards sin. The Bible says that God's expectation is that His children, His sons and His daughters, we're going to be the people who are determined to stop Sinning. And if you have any kind of doubts or questions about that still kind of remaining, you're thinking, well, I'm just not really sure about that, Josh. Well, I will remind you that there are certain sins that we all expect for people to stop. Even people who aren't Christians will be the first to say, hey, you need to stop doing that. You have to stop doing that. For example, when somebody confesses to adultery, would we accept it if that person said, well, you know, I'm going to cut back on my adultery. You know, stop it now. I can't really stop it right now, but certainly over the course of the next several weeks and the next several months, I'm going to, I'm going to taper how much I, I see and visit with my mistress. And, you know, I think maybe within a couple years, maybe five or ten years at the most, I think I can pretty much get rid of that relationship altogether. What would we say if somebody said that? We'd say, no way! you got to stop! Stop doing that! Or if somebody admitted and confessed and said, you know, I've, I've been stealing money from my company. I've been embezzling funds from the firm. But, but you know, I, I'm working on that. That's, that's a struggle for me. I really struggle. I'm a sinner, don't you know? And I struggle with embezzling. And I'm working on that. You know, last week I embezzled $20,000. I think this week I can cut back a little bit. I'll only take $10,000. And maybe by this time next year, I'll only be taking four or five hundred dollars a week. I think that'll be okay by then. Are you kidding me? What are we going to say to that person? We're going to say, stop it. Stop doing that. Now, if we understand that, and if that is true when it comes to adultery, or embezzlement, or murder, somebody commits murder, what are we going to say? You can't do that anymore. You've got to stop doing that. Rape, you've got to stop doing that. If that is true of those sins then why is that not also true of other sins like gossip or lust or lying or fits of anger? We need to do what with those things? We need to stop sinning. So one maybe says, well, wait a minute, Josh. Okay, I'm never going to be able to completely stop sinning. I'm following your train of thought here, but I'm never going to be able to completely stop doing that. And I understand that. I do. I get that. 
as one sinner speaking to an audience of sinners, I know that struggle all too well. But I wonder sometimes if we have just become so passive about that. We have become so accepting of that that we have just decided that, well, this is, this is just how it is. There's just nothing that can ever really be done about that. How about instead we put away that line of thinking and instead we say, you know what? I may never be perfect. But do you see that sin right there? I'm going to kill it. And that sin right there in my life, I'm going to choke it. And that sin right there, I'm going to get rid of that out of my life. It's kind of like dandelions in the yard. Those of you all that hear me preach on a regular basis, you know where I stand on yard work. But in the spring, when those dandelions are bound to start cropping up in everybody's yard, and they tend to, I mean, we can grow a bumper crop of dandelions in our yard. But when that time comes every year, I am not averse to going out in the yard every now and then, and I'll just reach down and I'll yank them up out by the root. Got to dig right down there and yank those things up. Now, that's good, and that's that's wonderful, but can I ever by hand pick all of the hundreds and thousands of dandelions in my yard and your yard and everywhere else? Probably not. But you know what? That one right there, I can get that one out. And that one over there, I can yank that one out. And I can get rid of this one, and I can get rid of that one. I can go to work on them one by one. Isn't that what the Lord's looking for? Isn't that what Peter and Paul and John were all pushing for in those passages that we just read? That sin, it is not normal. That just as that dandelion in my yard, it's out of place. It doesn't belong there. In the same way, sin in my life, especially in the life of a Christian, it doesn't belong there. It's out of place when it is in my life. I cannot live with that. I cannot accept that in some way. I cannot say, well, you know, there's just a whole bunch of them there in my life. I just don't really know how I'm going to be able to deal with all of that. No. I'm going to start yanking them up one by one by the roots. And I'm going to get them out. And with the help of God, what I'm going to do, little by little, is I'm going to stop sinning. Maybe a sports metaphor would really help us here. In sports... Every team knows that they can't win them all. Every team knows that eventually you're going to lose. Even the very best team knows eventually our number is going to come and we are going to lose a game. But as a coach, some of you all do coach little league teams and so forth. As a coach, do you want players on your team who just kind of come to the table right from day one who say, well, you know, coach... You win some and you lose some, and well, that's that's just kind of the way it goes. Do you want that kind of attitude out of your players? The kind of attitude that's just predisposed to failure? The kind of attitude that's just predisposed to conceding defeat right up front? Absolutely not. I want guys and gals on my team who are determined that we're going to try to win all of them. And then when they don't win all those games, they're going to be bothered by that. It's going to afflict them. Why? Because they want to triumph. They want to win. And that's really what this first key is all about. It is the spirit of the Christian that says, I want to die to sin. I do not ever want to normalize my transgressions and my iniquities. Because as God's people, we do everything that we can to get those dandelions out. That's the attitude. That's the first shift in attitude that needs to take place. And the way that we're able to shift our attitude in that way is secondly, by just changing how we feel about sin. Look at Hebrews the 11th chapter, please. 
In Hebrews 11, we find what to some might be a rather shocking passage. can't believe that the Bible would actually say this. But the Bible does actually say this. Here's a very brutally honest passage in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer's wanting to say some things here about the great faith of Moses. And he says here that Moses, chapter 11, verse 25, he says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What that passage affirms to us is that sin is indeed pleasurable. That it is enjoyable. And that does explain why there are so many people in our world who are just neck deep in sin. It's fun. It's easy. It feels good. It's delightful. The Bible really just echoes what most people have already figured out in their lives, and that is that there are pleasures in sin. Well, can I ask you, if that's how we feel about sin, that it's pleasurable, then how are we ever going to put a stop sign up in our lives and stop doing that? Well, I'll tell you what's going to have to happen is, is we're going to have to change how we feel about sin. I'm going to have to change at a fundamental level how I feel towards sin. I'm going to have to learn to actually not enjoy it. I'm going to have to learn to hate sin, to despise it, to loathe it with every fiber of my being. Can I give you two directions that I think help us to get our thinking in that particular vein? First and foremost, we need to stop and think about, we need to stop and think about what sin does to the Lord. Do you ever pause and just think about the effect that your sin has on God? I would imagine every Sunday when we're gathered around this table, maybe that's the one time for sure we're thinking about the effect that our sin has on God. But on like a day-to-day basis, when you commit sin, that thought ever cross your mind? You know, every now and then someone will maybe come up to you and they'll say, now I don't want you to take this personally, and then what usually follows next? What usually follows is something that is terribly personal and insulting and demeaning and degrading. Now, I don't want you to take it personally, but you are so homely. But don't take it personally. Don't, don't, don't take it personally at all. Listen to me very carefully. Do not ever say or even think to the Lord, Now, Lord, don't take my sin personally. God takes every sin personally. Look with me in the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 11. In Hosea chapter 11, near the end of the Old Testament, the prophet is pleading, using the voice of God. He pleads with the people to return back to the Lord. And one of the ways that he pleads with them is through these very intensely personal pleas. Listen to the very personal language here. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Think about the relationship that God is describing there. Verse 7, My people, they are bent on turning away from me. Verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Israel's sin, their idolatry, their paganism, their faithlessness, it hurt the Lord. You can hear it in His words in this chapter. And what you and I need to know is that our sins today They do the exact same thing to the Lord. God can't not take sin personally. 
Because when we sin, we are rejecting Him. We are rejecting His Word that He has given us. We are rejecting His way, which is in fact the best way to live. We are saying, Lord, I don't really care what You say. I don't care what Your verdict is on that. I'm going to do what I want to do. That hurts God. The One who made us, the One who blesses us in every way, the One who cares for us, the One who loves us, the One who sent His Son to die for us, for us to spurn Him, for us to reject His Word in any fashion. Think of how that must make Him feel whenever we engage in sin. On top of that, not only is sin about the effect that it has on the Lord, but sin also affects it also affects others who are around us. And it damages them. It damages, for example, the people that we love. The people who are the closest to us. Think about David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel. Who was probably damaged the most by that? Who incurred the most pain and suffering from that? I can tell you this, David had three children who lost their lives as a result of his sin. What about Nadab and Abihu? Somebody's maybe thinking, well, David's sin was a big sin. What about little sins? What about Nadab and Abihu? They did what we might consider, or some might consider, kind of a little sin. They just kind of went into business for themselves on the altar of God, just kind of offered some some different kind of fire. Well, who suffered? Who was damaged by their sin? Their father, when they were struck dead and he was now left with two dead sons, the pain and the agony that he had to feel. Every sin has some effect. And that effect is usually first felt by the people who are the closest to us, the people who love us the very most, our relatives and our friends, and they end up reaping many times the painful harvest that our sin creates. For example, the man who's an alcoholic, think of how he damages the rest of his family. Or the woman who goes running around on her mate. Not only is her spouse damaged by that, but the children, they pick up the tab for her sin. But what about the man, the father, who's just a spiritual zero in the home? And he does not lead his wife. And he does not lead his children to know the Lord. He does not practice headship in the home. That man, he suffers, but all the rest of his family, in fact, all of society suffers because of his sin. Sin damages others. And I want you to know, it doesn't just damage all the people that we know and the people who are close to us. Think about how sin damages just people in general. Why do we lock our doors at night? Why do we have an alarm on this church building? Why do we have guns and concealed carry licenses? Why do we hesitate to pick up, you know, strangers and passerbys, hitchhikers, or give money to vagrants? Why are we reluctant to do that? Because there's sin in this world. Because every sin introduces or reintroduces selfishness of every kind into this world. The wise man says in Proverbs 13 and in verse 15 that the way of the transgressor is hard. And that is absolutely true. But you know what? The transgressor also makes it hard for everybody else. And that is why our pulpits are often so full of the rebuke of sin. I wish I didn't have to preach so much about sin and sinful things. That's why we have to spend so much time speaking against things like pornography and alcohol and immorality and covetousness and envy and anything else that you can think of that damages and taints and destroys our world. Instead of getting to stand up here and talk all the time about good things like God's grace and His love and joy and heaven and all those sorts of things, 
We have to talk about the bitter fruit of sin, don't we? Because that's the reality of the world in which we live. And since that bitter fruit is the reality of our world, we always end up kind of holding others at arm's length, don't we? Because I just don't know what you might do. I don't know what you've got up your sleeve. You know, you may betray me. You may lie to me. You may gossip about me. And the truth is, you're holding me at arm's length as well because well, because you're afraid I may do the same thing to you. We live in a world that is full of sin and just to be quite frank, it ruins everything. That, that way of thinking about sin is very different from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, isn't it? That's very different than thinking of sin as being pleasurable and enjoyable. Which is why I actually would challenge anyone to enjoy sinning when they contemplate what sin does to God the Father or to think about how sin damages and poisons other people. Sin has ruined our world. And the more we understand about that, the more that we think and contemplate about that, then the more we can say what needs to be said, and that is, I hate it. I abhor it. I take no pleasure. I take no delight, no enjoyment in it. I want no part of sin. Which brings us to this third and final key this morning. And that is to just say a word or two about the power of habit. You know, what we're talking about this morning, I think is really a very thoughtful approach to sin. We're thinking about it. We're exploring it. We're thinking about what sin does to God. We're thinking about the effects that sin has on other people. We're thinking about the effects that sin has on us. We are engaging our minds for these few moments so that we can think very carefully and very seriously about sin. But unfortunately, you and I cannot go through life constantly at every waking moment engaging in deep, thoughtful sorts of thoughts. Life just doesn't work that way. Life happens to you fast. You're presented with a temptation... Like that. You don't have time to sit and have these kinds of long thoughts about sin like we're doing this morning. That's why, that's why we need habits. What are habits? Habits are those things that we can do without even thinking about them. I back out of my garage every morning and I generally don't even think about it. The driveway never moves. It's in the same position as it always is. I click that garage door opener. It's almost like muscle memory. My arm just goes up and reaches up to hit that clicker every time. I don't even think about it. I don't, when I leave and, and I don't even ponder whether the garage door shut or not. I just, just by habit, just go through and do all those things. It practically just takes care of itself. That's, that's the power of a habit. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that if you're ever going to reach a point where you are stopping sin in your life, then you're going to have to build some important habits in your life. So that you don't have to constantly stop and think those deep thoughts right there in the heat of the moment. The Bible actually has a word for that. Do you know what that word is? It's the word walk. That's Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is one of Paul's favorite words. And whenever he uses this word walk, what he's talking about is a habitual manner of living. In Ephesians chapter 4, look in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Maybe just turn the page, chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Those things speak of a manner of living, don't they? Where through habit, some things have just become ingrained in us. They've become a part of us so that we can do right almost automatically. Where we can do the right thing almost without even thinking about it. Look in Galatians, please. Just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5 and verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not sin. Isn't that what we want? That's exactly what we want to do. We want to build those habits, that walk of the Spirit, so that we can habitually do right. We can keep doing right. In fact, we can even get stronger in doing right. Can I just very quickly recommend a couple of habits that are worth cultivating in your life? One of those habits is found in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Look in Luke chapter 4. There's a couple of places where we read about Jesus doing things and the Bible will say it was His custom or it was His practice or even it was His habit. This is one of those places. In Luke chapter 4, this is verse 16. In Luke 4 verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth where He had been brought up and as was His custom, His habit... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and He stood up to read. You know what that verse says? That verse says that Jesus went to church. Jesus regularly made time to come and worship God. Jesus went to church regularly and habitually. Now under the law of Moses, that of course would have been on Saturday. And that would have been down at the synagogue or the temple. But of course, for us today, under the New Covenant, that would be Sunday, the first day of the week. And where does that take place? That takes place in the assembly of which you are sitting in right now. So let me ask you, if you are serious about stopping sin, where does worship, where does habitually and regularly going to church, where does that fit into the equation? I think Jesus' example shows us that needs to be a top priority. Think about what happens when we come here. A time of self-examination whenever we come around the Lord's table. A time of confession before God. Singing songs like yield not to temptation. Think about how a song like that bolsters us in our fight against sin. Hearing God's Word proclaimed, the passages that we've read this morning. Listening to a man pray, Lord, Lord, protect us from temptation. Keep us from the snares of the evil one. Investing in God's kingdom financially. All of those things, they pull us deeper into the kingdom and they pull us deeper into what God wants us to be as His disciples. And I'm saying this morning that if you are serious about stopping sin, then you're going to need to make going to church a habit. There's no discussion about that. There's no debate about that. There's no back and forth about that. I can tell you there was lots of things that was asked in my house growing up. Lots of questions that was asked of my mom and my dad. But a question that was never asked was, Dad, are we going to church on Sunday? There was no decision about that. Of course we were going to church. No, Absolutely, we didn't think about that. That was a habit. It was a custom. It was a regular fixture in our lives. That needs to be a no-brainer for us. Of course, I'm going to the house of the Lord to worship with my brothers and my sisters. When you make that a habit, I'm going to tell you, you will find that that makes it really hard for you to sin. Think about it. It is difficult for you to sin 
When you know the next day you're going to be in this assembly and a brother's going to pass those trays, those emblems in front of you, and in that moment you're going to have to examine yourself. And as you examine yourself, that sin is going to stand out in your mind between you and the Lord. It will not be enjoyable to sin. It will not be enjoyable to sin when you've heard a sermon on hell. Sin won't be very fun when you have spent time praising God, singing your heart out because His Son is exalted, crowned with blood and thorns we sing. This, what we are doing right now, it changes us. It has the power to change us. But I'm going to tell you, it only changes us when we do it again and again and again through habit. Let me give you that second habit from the life of Jesus in Luke 22. In Luke 22, this is verse 39. In Luke 22 and in verse 39, there Luke records for us, Luke 22 verse 39, that Jesus came out and He went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives to pray. Jesus prayed regularly and habitually. If you and I are ever going to stop sinning, then who do we need to be spending time talking to? We need to be bringing that regularly to our Father. We need to be involved in some serious soul searching that prayer provides. We need to be crying out to God for His mercy and for His forgiveness and for His help in our battle against sin. In many ways, prayer ends up kind of energizing Everything else that we do to become dead to sin. Think about it. You cannot, with a clean conscience, go to God in prayer and ask Him to help you stop sinning if you actually have no intention of giving that sin up. You can't ask God to help you get this sin out of my life if you still love your sin, if you still treasure your sin, if you still plan to be involved in your sin, if you have still kind of made peace with your sin. That Well, that's, that's just the dandelions. They're just going to be there. They're going to pop up. When you talk to God about your sin, that kind of hypocrisy, it is just utterly exposed. So if you're going to stop sinning, you're going to need to build this habit of regular prayer. Jesus, think about it. Jesus never even sinned. And yet He went to His Father regularly for the strength to fortify Him in the battles that the devil was pressing against Him day by day. What's that say to us about our need for daily habitual prayer? In fact, can I just tidy all of that up with what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1? Look in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is that passage that we read at least a couple of different times last year in our series about growth, increasing in these various aspects of Christian character. Look at what Peter says here, and he says some things about habit, making something a practice. In 2 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, in virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10 now, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, never fall. 
Peter seems to believe that if we build some habits into our lives, we've talked specifically about worship and about prayer. Peter enumerates a whole list of other things. But if we are habitually practicing these godly characteristics, if we are continuing to grow in them, Peter says we will never fall. Maybe to take that verse and put it into the vernacular of this sermon, Peter says, if you will practice habitually these things, you will stop sinning. What a powerful idea. The power of habit. One final verse this morning. It's in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 12, Paul presents two possible outcomes. With sin. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In our world, if you run a stop sign, What's the penalty? Well, if a police officer catches you running a stop sign, you may get a ticket, or maybe even worse. And we worry about that, and so we kind of, you know, act accordingly because of the fear of that punishment. But you know what you really need to worry about if you run a stop sign? What you really need to worry about is that somebody else is going to be coming from the other direction... And they're going to think that they've got the right of way. And you just roll right through that stop and boom! You crash. And maybe you die. You know what that says to me? That says to me that it's a bad idea to ignore stop signs. And that's especially true in ignoring God's stop signs. Paul says we could die spiritually. We could lose our soul if we ignore God's stop sign about sin. On the other hand, Romans 8.13 does go on to say that if we will observe that big sign that says, Stop sinning, Paul says, then we will live. I'll say again, there's a lot of resolutions that you could make this year. But there's not many that are more important than this one. Because this is one that has eternal implications. Let me say, first of all, brothers and sisters, we need to determine that each and every one of us those of us who name the name of the Lord, that we are going to depart from iniquity, we're going to decide today, we'll stop sinning. And if this morning, if that struggle for you in your life, if it is overwhelming, if you feel defeated by that constant struggle with sin, and yes, it is real. It is real, the struggle that we have. Then we are inviting you right now to call upon us, your spiritual family here, Pray with you, to encourage you, to lift you up, to help you, hold you accountable in that fight against sin. Let's help us, let's help each other to remove sin from our lives so that we can serve the Lord in a better way. If you're not a Christian, you need to know this morning that you can begin that process, begin that journey of removing sin from your life, putting sin to death by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by doing that this very hour. All things are ready for that to happen right now. Today could be the very day that you break free from the chains of sin, the slavery of sin, by being united with Christ in the waters of baptism. Our Lord shed His blood so that you might know that freedom, so that you might be cleansed from each and every sin.
simply a matter of you responding to Him in faith and accepting His gracious gift of salvation. Whatever your need may be this morning, we stand ready to assist. The Lord stands ready to save. Would you make that known by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing?